0: There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away
1: man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true
0: for you and me so there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day there's a great big beautiful tomorrow just a dream away hello and welcome to dream with mind and heart every disney movie ever i'm ryan silberstein and with me is
1: megan bojarski
0: and in this episode, we will travel along with a circus to see an elephant fly, along with a lot of sadness and hardship. As we talk about Dumbo, uh, Disney's, I guess, technically fourth fully animated feature film. If we're count- counting the Reluctant Dragon, as sort of a interesting hybrid thing. Um, and you know, if you did listen to our episode, uh, our previous episode from last week, you heard us talk about the Reluctant Dragon and the animator strike. Uh, which we figured we had enough to talk about Dumbo that we would fold most, if not all, that discussion into the Reluctant Dragon and the studio tour. But just keep in the back of your mind that the animator strike is happening all throughout the production of Dumbo in terms of like the lead up to it, the build up. And the release happens of just a few months after the strike is resolved. But obviously, those feelings of resentment sort of continue. And so we'll touch on it here and there. But for our full discussion about the strike, uh, definitely listen to our last episode. Um, the you know Reluctant Dragon is on Disney+, Plus, so it's more accessible now than it literally ha- has ever been. Uh, <laughs> but, but Dumbo is one of the big ones, uh, I think, in a, in a weird way. So... Uh, Megan, I know you did some looking into the background of the origin of Dumbo, the flying elephant.
1: Yeah, so this one's really interesting because uh, if we go back and look at, I mean, really everything but the Academy Award review, we have a book or, or at least music for Fantasia that really kind of gives us the story. And Dumbo has one, but it is really weird. So diving into the conception, the beginning of the movie does say that this this movie is based on the story Dumbo the Flying Elephant by Helen Aberson and Harold Pearl. But the backstory on what that was is really complicated, uh, and actually debated a little bit. It's not really a book in the way that you would kind of understand it to be nowadays. And we actually... it's kind of one of these weird things that we really only think about existing with classical things. Dumbo the Flying Elephant was not a book, it was what was called a roller book And according to Dick Humor, it was essentially something to be given away in cereal boxes. It was just kind of a little scroll that told the story, um, and it just kind of found its way to Disney. So uh, according to various sources, in late 1939, so that's after Snow White came out, but before any of the others had, uh, Kay Kamen, who was the studio's hedge- head of merchandising, uh, showed a prototype of the book to Disney. From what I was able to find, basically they were hoping that Disney could help merchandise it or kind of expand the story a little bit and Disney went ahead and bought the rights to the story. Sometimes I've seen that the story was about 36 pages, Um, not really sure where that came from, but I know the original scroll was really just a few uh, panels, if anything. So from there, the story artists Dick Humer and Joe Grant were assigned to kind of develop it into a film, And in early 1940, they actually wrote a 102-page script. Not even a full script, just kind of an outline of how they were going to build this story. And they changed a lot. Uh, So we don't really have the original story, but they completely came up with the storks. Uh, They completely came up with the pink elephant sequence. Uh, Dumbo's mother was originally named Mother Ella, that was changed to Mrs. Jumbo, and they switched a wise robin to become the mouse Timothy, who we all know and love. They also added a crow, which then expanded into five. So long story short, the only real connection is there is a flying elephant that is somehow connected to the names Jumbo and Dumbo. It was really weird, this source kind of built out of its own thing. But quick fun fact for those who uh, are interested, uh, Helen Aberson actually graduated from Syracuse University's School of Speech in 1929, which is the same program that was my graduate program. Uh, So I I will claim that Dumbo came from our program, even though it kind of came from other sources too. The other major source is uh, Bianca Majoli had a cartoon that Disney had put out called Elmer Elephant. It had done pretty well, and she wrote many different scripts for the character, and then they just never actually made it to production. So, according to some of the sources, some of her original stories then got adapted into the story of Dumbo. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. It's definitely not. This standard story adaptation that we see for most of Disney's works,
0: yeah, and if you've ever seen uh, the Elmer Elephant character, he is like a patchwork character, meaning like he he looks like a quilt in the uh, original books that he's based on like he he's all colored squares. So he doesn't look like Dumbo, but there definitely is inspiration in in the kinds of stories being told. so he and he was a a silly symphony in 1936 and kind of Bianca Maggioli's baby. Like that was like her project more or less.
1: Yeah. So this is going to be one of the last times we really talk about Bianca Maggioli too much, but she was doing so much behind the scenes work, especially with kind of creating the source material. We talked about her with Fantasia. We talked about her with uh, Pinocchio so she was really kind of fundamental to kind of the early creation period in this uh, stage of Disney. But then, yeah, we do see kind of her, her influence fade out after this, which is unfortunate because I think that she had kind of the core elements of what made so many of these stories so intriguing.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. She is a, uh, a fascinating person. Uh, and if you haven't read uh, queens of animation uh, which i've listed in our show notes as a source but it's it, it it's a non-fiction book but it's not a dry one it's it's almost like a series of mini biographies kind of focusing on different women who worked at disney over the first few decades and their contributions uh and their experiences there and it if if you are interested enough to be listening to this podcast, you were certainly interested enough to go and seek out that book to get the rest of those stories, but uh, they're all well worth hearing, I think.
1: Absolutely. This was one of those stories that really does kind of show you the way that Disney worked, I think, because this wasn't a Walt Baby production. I mean, especially Snow White, but also Fantasia, and really Pinocchio to some extent, were these stories that Walt kind of took into his heart and dictated what they would be. And Dumbo is one of the first really stories that we see really, really breaking away from that. This was put together by the people who were working at Walt Disney and especially by the few people that were working through the strike, uh, which we'll be talking about a lot more as we dive into the production.
0: There's definitely the perception, at least, that the animation quality in Dumbo is lesser uh, than it was, especially in Pinocchio and, and Fantasia. It uses some techniques that are, are in common with uh, Snow White that we'll talk about, but it, it certainly has a different style. I, I feel like it's less, you know, uh, P- Pinocchio and Fantasia especially feel very painterly to me, especially compared to, uh, like, the Silly Symphonies and the shorts that we talked about in our first episode. And this feels more akin to those but expanded into feature length, which is, I'm trying to say that not as a dig because it is a style difference, but it is also a cost effective technique. Like this was a much cheaper production than those movies, in part because it's only 64 minutes long, which is the third shortest movie Disney has ever put out. And barely counts as like feature length is like 45 minutes or more and you rarely see anything 45 minutes get called a feature anymore like some i feel like some of the oscar documentary shorts are like about that long and you know here you have a a 64 minute movie um and you have animation that it's not that it's not dynamic but it's just not as like a painterly and like word that feels right to describe it it's just not as brush heavy it feels very like ink heavy more than paint heavy i guess is how i'm sort of trying to think about it um, and with that short runtime rko balked it was like you need you need to add at least like 10 minutes like make this a 74 minute movie uh and then we can really are going to have an easier time distributing it uh, there's some kind of business reason behind that i'm sure and Disney refused and said, nope, that's as far as I can stretch it. You can stretch the thing so far and then it won't hold. The picture is right as it is, at, and another 10 minutes is liable to cost $500,000. I can't afford it. I have no idea where he pulled that figure from. I mean, maybe he's right. But again, Roy's the money guy, and this is a Walt quote. So anytime Walt is talking about specific money, I'm very skeptical. <laughs> um, but I do think he's right about the, right about the story, that... <clears throat> the the story here is thin to begin with, and I think to add anything else would actually take away from it. Like you'd have to add so much to build it out further that it really would start to fall apart. I feel like, but I did find this really great quote from Ward Kimball, um, who you know worked on every animated feature from Snow White until he retired. Uh, but this is in Leonard Malton's book, The Disney Films. And he says, Sure, we've done things that have had a lot more finish, frosting, and tricky footwork, but basically I think the Disney cartoon reached its zenith with Dumbo. To me, it is the one feature cartoon that has a foolproof plot. Every story element meshes into place, held together with the great fantasy of a flying elephant. The first time I heard Walt outline the plot, I knew that the picture had great simplicity and and cartoon heart. Dumbo was also one of the cheapest (laughs) films we ever made. It came in for around $950,000, which is damn reasonable even for 1940, when our cartoon features like Bambi climbed into a 2 or 3 million dollar bracket. The reason we brought it in for a low price was that it was done quickly and with a minimum amount of mistakes. The story was clear and airtight to everyone involved in the project. We didn't do a lot of stuff over, we didn't do a lot of stuff over due to story point goofs. There were no sequences started and then shelved like in Pinocchio. Walt was sure of what he wanted, and this confidence was shared by the entire crew. Dumbo from the opening drawing went straight through to the finish with very few things changed or altered. And I think I think that speaks to the simplicity of it and the sort of episodic nature of the story that there 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 is an overall, you know, plot. Like Dumbo has this character arc about, you know, trying to find his place in the world and in the circus. But there's a lot of like, here's a sequence, and then we fade to black. And it almost, you know, you could you could imagine it broken up into these uh, segments, almost like a serial, where, you know, each, each little adventure sort of builds on the previous one, but is kind of its own, almost, not self-contained, but like, you know, has a beginning, middle of an end of each sequence. And so, you know, I think that is, it's like, I think the thing is, like, there's so many aspects of this movie that are less ambitious than... The other three fully animated features that we've talked about so far.
1: Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that I probably should have said earlier, so when we were doing the Reluctant Dragon, we said that one of the big things for that movie was they wanted it easy, they wanted it cheap, uh, and that was absolutely still going on here. So I think they definitely were prioritizing, let's do this really fast, let's make it, uh, make us money instead of losing money. But the way that they did that was by really boiling it down to what was most important. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, some of the weird little added scenes in a couple of minutes, but I think that they did a pretty good job of kind of deciding that instead of getting all convoluted and having 15 different narratives, they were really going to boil it down to one concept that... Perhaps they could do sequels or or even a TV series now, to kind of add elements to it. But from here, they were really looking at how do we do a simple story well, and in a lot of ways, I think they succeeded in that.
0: Yeah, and I really like that Ward Kimball quote because the first time I read it, when he talks about it being sort of like the high point of the Disney cartoon, I was like, okay, Dumbo's clearly not better in my mind than <laughs> Snow White, Pinocchio, or Fantasia, but I think. I think the way that, that the way I'm interpreting his quote is him talking about the shorts. And this is sort of like the ultimate short that they made. Um, like it's, it's like the short that became a feature almost where it really is taking, you know, cause all the shorts have a very simple story because they have to be, you know, eight, 10, 12 minutes at the most. And this is sort of taking the way that they made those shorts and turning it into a feature whereas the other movies feel like they rebuilt their entire process from the ground up.
1: I came into this I know kind of the the big scenes of Dumbo, but I didn't I don't know if I've actually ever seen this movie before we were doing it for this and when it turned on I went, "Oh wow. Yeah, that is definitely less sophisticated than you know, Snow White or or Pinocchio, really, which I think you saw kind of a a leap. But I think that there's also something to be said for well-polished simplicity. I mean, you can try to do a bunch of grand things and maybe do them okay, or you can do something relatively simple really, really well. And I think that's definitely kind of the perspective that they took on this one
0: yeah and I think it shows in terms of I feel like they hit the mark they were aiming for in this, and you know, I saw you have in our notes some interesting stuff about the technical ways that they maybe reduce some of the cost as well besides yeah. just the short runtime
1: so this is a uh, kind of interesting in addition to having like you said, the shorter runtime, there were actually some technological developments. So as we said in our really early episodes, Disney was always a company that was kind of trying out the new thing on the market. And so they switched from what was called cellulose nitrate to cellulose acetate. Uh, I am not a chemist, so I don't entirely know the difference between them. Uh, But essentially, from what I was reading, it was cheaper, uh, it was easier to work with, and it was less flammable. Apparently, the cellulose nitrate was relatively easy to catch on fire if you did it the wrong way, so they were trying to get this kind of new technology that would be easier to work with. Unfortunately, they had a little bit of difficulty with that. They would put these gorgeous colors on it, and then they came out looking really dull, which they just thought was completely unacceptable for a circus-based movie. So. They were trying to figure out, do we switch back to the original cellulose and just call it a failure, or do we find another way to do it? And what they did here was they actually, like we said with a couple of other things, they simplified it in a way that worked really effectively. So in some of the earlier uh, films, they were using thousands of colors that they handcrafted. Uh, With this, they worked specifically with Technicolor, they tried to figure out what kind of color worked best with what kind of uh, cells and what they came up with was hundred and fifty colors many of which were shades of grey that's a very big shift from kind of what they were doing before which was to some extent do as many colors as possible Uh, but it was kind of this way of going in between the cheaper option and the amazing option So in the 1940s, only 12% of Hollywood films were in color. They didn't want to give up color. That wasn't something that they thought was acceptable, especially for this film. So what they did instead was they adapted. And they really stuck with, how can we make a few colors really impactful? And that was where we get, you know, this specific color for Dumbo or for Timothy Uh, rather than all of the deep shades and and backgrounds that we saw more in, like I said, Pinocchio. Um, But this made it a lot easier. Uh, They didn't need to have a million different colors and different people concocting each color and using each color, which allowed them to basically take a tiny bit of paint and color and ink and really just thrive with it. For one thing they used watercolor which they really hadn't done terribly much with after snow white uh, but they added those in instead of using oil paints uh, for the backgrounds and that gives us kind of the more simplistic look but a look that actually works really well for kind of this real world maps and circus theme you kind of get the uh, pops of color that you expect from the circus without some of the shades of realism that I think might detract from kind of the the story itself.
0: Yeah, and, and the colors that are here are pretty vivid, like you said. It gives Dumbo sort of a storybook feeling in my mind, uh, because it, it reminds me more of the way printed colors look, you know, because that's essentially a four-color process, and everything is, you know, a shade of those four colors. But you know, here I think I think the simplicity works, and I think with you know some of the intensity of the scenes <laughs> that we're talking about, more colors might have just made it even harder to watch. Um, you know, another another piece of the sort of simplicity of it is, you know, similar to the Silly Symphonies, similar to parts of Fantasia. This is an exercise in visual storytelling because uh, Dumbo doesn't have a single line of dialogue. In this movie, the main character, he does not speak. Um, his mom never actually speaks directly to him. She only has a few lines of dialogue where she's talking to other elephants, mostly. Um, you know, and she has a, a key song moment with her son. Um, but they they don't have dialogue with each other, which is interesting. Uh, but this does actually introduce two sort of, you know, Disney legend status voice actors uh, so Verma Felton shows up as the elephant matriarch is the character's name. Um, and it's the first of her numerous appearances. She later goes on to be the fairy godmother in Cinderella, the queen of hearts in Alice in Wonderland. She plays re- reprises her role as an elephant in the Jungle Book playing Winifred. Uh, she's not actually credited in, in this movie, but she goes on to be sort of in there. You know the the Disney company players of voice acting, uh, and the same for Sterling Holloway, who uh, is Mr. Stork in this movie. You have not seen this before, not seen it in a while. You probably recognize his voice mostly as Winnie the Pooh, because he's the original voice of the Disney incarnation of Winnie the Pooh. He was also the shesher Cat in Alice in Wonderland, and he was also Ka the Snake in uh, the Jungle Book, and among many other Disney credits. We. We will keep bringing these names up, uh, but I thought it would be good to highlight uh, exactly where they got their start. Uh, the other person I want to talk about really quickly is Walt Kelly. So Walt Kelly, uh, I actually didn't realize that Walt Kelly had been a Disney animator. or I might have brought him up on an earlier episode, but I think it if it's here, um, Dumbo's the last Disney feature that he worked on. Uh, he was responsible for animating a, b- a lot of the stuff with the Ringmaster. Uh, but he had worked on uh, some shorts and then Pinocchio, Fantasia, and the Reluctant Dragon. Um, Walt Kelly is best known as the, uh, as the cartoonist behind Pogo, which was a massively popular uh, newspaper comic strip from 1948 until uh, Kelly passed away in the 70s. And it was just a massive hit. One of the biggest hits. It was a sort of left-leaning satire set in the Okefenokee Swamp. Uh, and it had a bunch of animal characters who, you know, got into all sorts of situations. There was a lot of, light humor. It was the kind of thing that was, like, uh, family-friendly in the sense that it was, like, appropriate for kids. And kids would be able to follow along. But there was a lot of allegory and uh, references to current events that adults would, would pick up on. Like there was a, a character parroting uh, Senator McCarthy during the Red Scare. And like a kid would read it and, and, you know, understand that this possum or whatever animal character he was, you know, was a bad guy. But the adults would recognize that this was supposed to be McCarthy. Um, and so he just has this legendary career. And I actually didn't realize that he had a uh, Disney connection. But dur- during the strike... Despite his later reputation, like I said, as a fairly progressive, left leaning uh, political or or newspaper cartoonist, uh, he refused to take sides during the strike and actually took a leave of absence so that he would not have to be involved. And because he was very close with people on, on both sides of it, from the reading I did, part of it too was he was just getting tired of working in animation because he wanted to do his own thing. And animation is inherently a collaborative medium you can't do the whole thing by yourself or it takes years and years and years to get anything done. Um, and so with the, you know, the, the pressure of, of the production stuff, the strike, all that kind of stuff, this was his like, all right, I can't do this anymore. But uh, he did in 1960, he did write a letter to Walt Disney saying just in case I ever forgot to thank you I'd like you to know that I for one have long appreciated the sort of training and atmosphere that you set up back there in the 30s there were drawbacks as there are to everything but it was an astounding experiment and experience as I look back on it certainly it was the only education I ever received and I hope I'm living up to a few of your hopes for other people which I think is a really uh, honest but also sweet kind of letter to Walt Disney <laughs> um you know, and and Pogo itself and Walt Kelly had a huge influence on things like Calvin and Hobbes and Doonesbury. Jim Henson was a big fan. Uh, Jeff Smith, who was the cartoonist behind the Bone uh, series, which has been collected as a massive graphic novel, uh, and many, many, many others. Uh, So I thought it would, I just wanted to highlight him as a person I didn't realize had a connection to Disney.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people, especially in the early days that we don't necessarily see the connections because so much of it was hidden Uh, which is one of the things that was a big deal with the strike in particular you know if you look through the early uh movies there are a few credits um you know usually there's about eight to ten uh in some of the films there are no credits uh in fantasia for instance there's basically no on-screen credits Uh, And this was one of those movies where we finally start seeing credits uh, fairly expansively, which allowed us to see some of these legendary figures as they're kind of dipping their toes into the Disney world.
0: Yeah, that's actually exactly how I realized that connection was because, I mean, one, I hadn't watched this movie since I was very young, uh, for reasons that we will talk about later, but um, because we've been, this is the first time I'm ever watching any of these in a specific chronological order. And so going from, you know, Fantasia, especially, again, The Reluctant Dragon, kind of its own thing, has to follow different rules because it's sort of a live-action movie. But then seeing the extensive opening credits uh to this movie, like, I was looking at the names, and I was like, oh, I know that person, I know that person. I was like, Walt Kelly, is that that Walt Kelly? And so then I was like, pause the movie, let me go uh look it up. But I feel like there are more names in the opening credits of Dumbo than there are in all of the previous movies put together.
1: That's probably true. <laughs> um, my, my experience with that was kind of interesting, though, uh, because you were, as you pointed out, there's a lot of names that, you know, in the credits you can go, oh, I know that one, I know that one. Um, but for me, I usually do the readings before I watch the film, and I was kind of troubled by the names that weren't there. Uh, because this was a greatly expanded uh, list of credits like you said, there's no women. there's not a single woman in the opening credits despite many of them having some pretty significant roles. Um, so three just in uh, three or four in particular that came up in my research, uh, the baby mind sequence was actually, Largely led by Mary Blair, who's going to be a huge name in Disney history, uh, who we'll be talking about a lot more in later episodes. You know, it's considered one of, if not the most emotional scenes in the movie and was actually heavily influenced, so say the sources, by Blair's own repeated miscarriages and her, you know, struggle in the idea that, you know, she had tried so many times to have children just to have them taken away and despite that being extremely important to the film and being extremely personal she's not credited um, like we said earlier Bianca Maggi- uh, Bianca Maggioli's Elmer Elephant was a big inspiration she's not credited at all uh, Mary Goodrich, she had been working on a version of The Snow Queen which Fun fact is what eventually became Frozen, so that one took a while to to work its way through Disney, uh, but she switched over to working on Dumbo. So this was actually something that had a lot of women working on it. When the strikes hit, there were many women who did leave uh, or who went on strike, and maybe that's part of it, but there is at least one major figure that we know didn't. Uh, So Retta Scott was one person that we know her history, we know that she didn't feel she could uh, strike, because she felt that she wouldn't be able to take care of her family and survive if she wasn't getting the income. So she did a massive amount of work to get the movie done. Uh, If you believe the Queens of Animation book, she was kind of the major driver. Uh, One of the things that we... Have talked about a little bit and that you may remember from our last episode is that disney was actually away from the studio he was working with rockefeller overseas so he wasn't there she was she stayed and she was working massive amounts of overtime really driving everyone to get it done uh they actually only finished the film two and a half weeks before its premiere and though she stayed working longer than most and though she you know, put everything she had into the movie, she was fired just a month after and is not credited in this movie. So while there's definitely more credits, you can definitely see some of those power imbalances there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, I kind of like that we sort of have opposite approaches. Like, I watch the movie and then I do the reading because I'm like, I want to be fresh when I'm doing that research. But I, I, I like that we have... Uh, sort of opposite approaches to the the order of watching versus uh, doing our, our homework. But no, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people missing from the credits. A lot of women especially missing from the credits. And I think that's one thing that's so great about that book is that it does highlight how integral uh, women were to the history of Disney and how important they were. Um, <clears throat> the other piece related to the strike uh, within the movie is the... Uh, the clowns, which which you've described as you know, as villainous, which I, I won't disagree with. There's sort of a legend or urban legend kind of kind of take that the clowns are sort of poking fun at the animators who did strike. Uh, although Art Babbitt, who as we know was sort of the, the leader of the those who did strike, uh, you know, he's he's denied it, but he said that wasn't consciously at least, that wasn't the the reason behind including the clowns and depicting them as such. But I do think it's, I think it's very, uh, very possible to read that those sequences in that way and read those characters that way. And, you know, I'm sure people at the time may have even been like, when I say people, people at the Disney studio at the time watching this film may have attached some specific people to specific clowns in the movie because they are often animator caricatures and things you know, built into these movies because they draw the people around them, uh, but I I do think that's an interesting layer, and it's it's one that I uh, I th- I just think it's it's really interesting that's come up enough for you know our Babbitts to sort of go on the record and be like, well, it's certainly not not intended that way.
1: Yeah, I think that there's I guess one of the points we haven't really discussed up till this point is that there really are only three characters that are decent people uh for the duration of this movie there's dumbo who is a small child who knows nothing better dumbo's Mm -hmm. mom who just seems to want to love her child and then timothy uh and everybody else uh is at least for some duration of time a terrible human being um and I think that that's definitely one area where you could look into it and go, hmm, let's look at why these people are being cruel to everyone. You have the the very stuck-up uh, elephants, which, for the record, their talks of being from a proud race were a bit uncomfortable, knowing that this was from the 1940s. Uh, and, and the crows who, you know, decide to to make a joke out of the fact that these two land animals are in a tree. Um, There's a lot of mockery going on here. Uh, There's, there's very few characters that aren't kind of snubbing their noses at Dumbo at some point or another.
0: Yeah. Even, even the stork has a, has an interesting characterization, you know, where he's sort of, I don't want to say like ambivalent, like he is doing his job, but like, you know, I, I, I sort of have mixed feelings about the the gag of, you know, Dumbo's mom, which I, I like, I, I do like the name uh, Mother Ella because it sounds like elephant much better than Mrs. Jumbo, but that's, that I think, says a lot about the attitude behind <laughs> this movie. Um, you know, the gag of him sort of getting in the way of her meeting her child, like, is a funny gag, but also, like, given the tone of the whole movie, just you know, starts it off on a sort of, you know, sad downbeat.
1: Yeah, I think that this movie, I mean, it has a couple of really good moments, but it seems like it's basically sad or creepy for for large portions of it. I mean, the stork song is very ominous. It's like, we don't care what you're doing or where you are, the Storks will find you. Uh, Why? Why did they decide to portray, you know, having children as this like terrifying thing? And then of I think course, says
0: something about. I, th- I think that's that says something about a lot of the men that worked on this movie. Maybe
1: that's a fair point. The storks are creepy. The pink elephant scene is really creepy. I, I don't know. It might be better if you're high or something. But it it was to me a a bit disturbing. Um, kind of like the, uh, scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where they go on the boat and they're just seeing, like, flashing colors and then insects and- and creepy stuff. I don't know, that was the vibe that I got from it, so it was really weird to intercut, like, Hey look, Dumbo's mom is sad. Terrifying things. Dumbo can fly. Terrifying things.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get into more of that later, because I, I definitely have some thoughts. But the, the tone, I think, is a big obstacle uh, for for the movie overall, and, and I think those are some really good examples. You know, before we move on to the contemporary reaction, you'll pull out two sort of pop culture things uh, that, one, I did not realize that this was not the origin of Pink elephants. so you could talk more about that. A thing I've always thought about when watching this movie, but have never actually... You know, had the resources to look up.
1: Yeah. So I always like finding Easter eggs or moments where I go, hmm, I feel like copyright law should have uh, impacted something here. Um, so starting with the seeing pink elephants, it was just kind of a weird concept for me. So I wanted to look into it. And it's actually a euphemism that dates back really far. Uh, we know that at the very latest uh there was an alcoholic character in in the 1913 novel john barleycorn who is said to hallucinate quote blue mice and pink elephants so we know that that was around colloquially it was around at least through the majority of the earliest 20 the early 20th century Uh, so you kind of had this idea that seeing pink elephants was just a phrase that they thought hmm, let's play with that let's bring that to life um although it was a little bit weird to me because um, i had never heard the phrase until this the other kind of quick note thing that i wanted to pull out was uh casey jr going up the mountain saying i think i can i think i can and then going down i think i could i think i could because that certainly felt like something that was trademarked to me uh but apparently was not um Kind of like when they used Jiminy Cricket in uh, Snow White, it was one of those interesting things where it actually dates back to at least 1902. It was published in a book in 1930, uh, but it's actually technically folklore, so they could use it as much as they wanted. Uh, So those were two kind of things where you might think that Dumbo was the origin, or at least go that's a little bit weird. I know that's a recognizable phrase. Uh, So that's your little dose of history on where those two phrases come from.
0: Yeah, that that little engine that could connection because I definitely had a storybook of that as a kid with like a blue locomotive, like I can picture the cover art very clearly. And it's so interesting because this is not an adaptation of that story. It's just sort of tossed in here as part of you know the trained Casey Junior's personality, uh, so I'm I'm glad to know that that's folklore, and I enjoy that there is a Jack London connection to, um, uh to the to the Pink Elephants, and I I didn't have time to look into to try to research more, but it is interesting that like that uh, novel is pre-prohibition, and then Dumbo's already post-prohibition. And so I, there, there's something interesting there about the timing of all this, but I didn't really have uh, a chance to, to look into it too deeply because, like I said, we're already, like, well, post-Prohibition. Um, but it's just interesting trying to kind of line up sort of different historical and cultural things as, as we go through this. So as, as we sort of mentioned before, Dumbo was released October 23rd of 1941, and the reactions were generally positive. And so, you know, Bosley Crowther, uh, reviewing for the New York Times, uh, he wrote that it was, quote, the most genial, the most endearing, the most completely precious cartoon feature film ever to emerge from the magical brushes of Walt Disney's wonder-working artists. Um, which is just, I mean, that's just good writing from <laughs> Bosley <laughs> Crowther. Uh, even if I maybe don't agree, I, I, I think it's interesting that the reaction of this was so positive. I think some of that might be the the time period, um, the there's a whole thing that you dug up about Time Magazine, uh, where they were gonna honor Dumbo as Mammal of the Year, which uh, that cover then got delayed because of the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, but it was published at the end, the very end of December nineteen forty one, um, and their review said it's probably Disney's best all around picture to date, and I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> uh, which, which we'll, we'll we'll talk about but it's just, it's very interesting um, you know and I I did ha- I also forgot how many songs are in this like I remembered Pink Elephants and I remembered Baby Mine and I remembered the Crow song and that, I mean that's three already but there's a lot, you know, at the beginning you get the Stork song and then you get the Casey Jr. Train song and then there's sort of an interlude from that like it's very song heavy uh, but it's also not in that sort of You know, Howard Ashman Broadway structure that I'm like so used to from the 90s movies. Like, there's no I want song in this. There, there's no, you know, Dumbo doesn't like burst into song and think about how, like, oh, if only I was accepted by the people around me, if only I could find my my place in the circus, you know, then things then then I would feel better. Like, there isn't there isn't that sort of character-driven structure. It's again sort of things happening around into this character.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And part of that is probably because Dumbo doesn't actually say anything. But I think there's a a good question of who is the main character of this story? Um I mean obviously Dumbo is who it's named after. Uh Timothy is certainly the most active character. He's kind of pushing for Dumbo to have success. Baby Mine certainly shows us kind of a sneak peek of Dumbo's mom's perspective. Uh, But you really kind of do get lost on who this story is about, to some extent, because Dumbo doesn't actually say anything.
0: Yeah, I feel like Dumbo is the main character, but Timothy is the protagonist, maybe?
1: That's a good point.
0: If we're like, you know, really, if I'm I'm writing like an English class paper about this... (laughs) You know, that's the track I might, I might take. Cause it's all about Dumbo, but Dumbo, he's sort of following people's lead. Like again, like things are happening to him. Like he's not like complaining about being in the clown, uh, act. It's just like, he's just forced into it. And I think that's part of my problem with the movie. But again, we'll, we'll talk about that (laughs) in a little bit. It's, it's so hard to separate all of these thoughts. Um, but I think, I think this all, I think there's a there's a there's a grand theory of Dumbo of at least m- my experience with it that I've sort of been building as I was watching and then kind of doing the reading. Um, but like I said at the top, you know, Dumbo is one of, sort of, certainly one of the most iconic um, Disney animated films that they have ever released. Um, you know, we'll we'll talk about some of the other examples. I, I just want to jump to. The theme park because you know the the dumbo ride where there are a bunch of dumbos and you go and sit inside in, inside of them and they go in a, a big circle and they go up and down which is a very you know sort of standard carnival um you know um it's just a very standard uh carnival you know seaside amusement park kind of ride uh it's extremely I- iconic um, they had a big problem when they first introduced it because they couldn't. They wanted the elephants to go up and down as well as around around. They couldn't get the up and down working right away, um, so they had to like go back and fix it later. But you know, it it's maybe the most iconic Disney ride. You know, like in the '90s when they would do that. The characters from like Full House and Roseanne are all like going to Disney World. But they were all they all went on Dumbo. I feel like like that was the big. <laughs> thing and in part it's used a photograph because it's outdoors you can see people who are on it from the ground unlike you know pirates of the caribbean where you're kind of in the dark uh the whole time but you know it dumbo exists at every single uh park that disney has opened i believe um, certainly california florida tokyo paris hong kong and then the casey jr circus train is in disneyland and Disneyland Paris. Uh, I didn't have the chance to go on it when I was in Disneyland last year because I was only there for a day, but I did get to see it, uh, which is cool. when you sort of sit in a miniaturized train car, um, and it's similar. It, it goes through some of the same territory as the uh, storybook canal boats. You get to see little sort of miniaturized scenes from different Disney movies as you go through, you know. And he does the like, I think I can, I think I can uh, at one point. Um, I feel like if I was going on that ride, I'd want to sit in like one of the cars that has like the bars for the animals, uh, (laughs) on it. Cause I feel like that, that seems fun. Um, and then Casey Jr. is also the second float in the main street electrical parade, uh, in its various versions. Um, and he has the big parade logo on the side, which I did get to see last time I was in Disneyland, um. And I don't even know that I clocked that it was Casey Jr. from this movie and not just a train. Uh, So, like I said, more, I think more iconic than anything else. But I think the initial reception and it being so popular initially, you know, is why it became iconic.
1: Yeah, I think that there's definitely this sense that its popularity immediately made the company kind of invest in it and spread it. Uh, you know, you were talking about the Disney specific parks. I went to a non-Disney carnival last week and there was a ride with flying elephants and it was called the Jumbo ride. And I was like, haha, that's a nice cheat because they're deviating from the movie. Although technically speaking, Dumbo's real name is Jumbo Jr. So, you know, maybe they have some copyright things to be worried about there. <laughs> But yeah, that initial reaction was definitely kind of critical to it. Like we had said with the songs, it might not be what we currently think of as being amazing, but Frank Churchill and Oliver Wallace, who scored the film, won the Academy Award for Best Original Score and were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. So as much as it, you know, is maybe a little bit questionable by our modern sense of how kind of story structure and and musical structure should work. It absolutely kind of was beloved when it first came out and was able to spread because of that.
0: Yeah, I just looked up the other song nominees for 1941 uh, that Baby Mine was competing against. And it is so what's amazing is the song that one is from a movie i've never heard of called lady be good the song is called the last time i saw paris which i don't believe i'm familiar with although it could be one where like i actually do know have heard the song but i didn't know i don't know it by that title but the the amazing thing is baby mine was up against uh there's wait one two three four five six there's like nine nominees in this category and two of them are extremely famous, popular songs that are still known to this day. So, uh, one is Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy from Buck oh, wow. Privates. <laughs> right? Uh, and the other one is Chattanooga Choo Choo uh, from Sun Valley, uh, Sun Valley Serenade. And those are, like, songs I didn't even know were from movies. I just thought they were, like, you know, like, just pop, pop songs that, that were out in the 1940s. Like... Uh, so that is, I mean, it's Dumbo, or Baby Mine is in good company there. Uh, when You Wish Upon a Star had actually won the year before. And now, now that I'm looking at this list from Pinocchio. So it's not like Disney didn't have any, but, um, yeah, it's sandwiched between, man, it, it comes after Over the Rainbow w- wins for 39. When You Wish Upon a Star wins for 1940. Like I said, last time I saw Paris, which I don't know off the top of my head, wins in 41. And then White Christmas wins the following year um which is like that's quite a run and again it's amazing that those two ridiculously famous songs both lost
1: (laughs) yeah there's definitely uh some iconic songs going on there oh wait i might i think i do know this song let me okay um yeah the last time i saw paris i am aware of it uh the lyrics i i've heard them before but it is not uh It doesn't compete with the other ones uh, as far as legacy, which is always kind of fun. And that's why we specifically look at the contemporary release versus the legacy. Uh, Right. (laughs) Because they are so very different, just like we said with uh, Snow White losing best picture to a movie that I had never heard of before.
0: Yeah, and, and along with its, you know, iconic status in the United States uh, National Film Registry, it was added in 2017. Dumbo and Alice in Wonderland were the first two Disney animated films released on home video. It is a fascinating story that we will get into at some point in the future. But they were really worried about undercutting those theatrical re-releases where they would put out a movie roughly every seven years they were worried about cannibalizing it, and that's why they had the Disney vault thing. But they sort of tested the waters with Dumbo and Alice in Wonderland because they're like the the top of the B tier for Disney. <laughs> not Cinderella, Snow White, Pinocchio, the, the most lauded ones. But they're like, they're like, all right, they're popular enough where we're going to test the waters with these. But we don't think we're going to lose a huge, you know, oh, we're not going to squander tons of profits if we put these out on home video first.
1: Yeah, I think that you definitely see that in even the contemporary ratings for these movies. So, for instance, on Rotten Tomatoes, Dumbo has a 98% critical score and a 70% audience score. Now, that's not a failing score, but there's definitely a difference there. Uh, Likewise, you see 7.2 out of 10 points on IMDb. Uh, So Dumbo was very much kind of a a celebrated movie that everyone agrees was pretty good, but then isn't necessarily the movie that everyone watches a million times when they're looking for that Disney flair. Um, so it, it kind of makes sense to me as one of those kind of tester movies. Uh, and it also kind of makes sense why its legacy kind of waffled back and forth. I mean, like we said, the parks definitely dove all in, but they didn't. Go on to make more Dumbo movies. Uh, So that's something that is also kind of interesting. Uh, They did plan a sequel, but it was announced 60 years later. Uh, They announced Dumbo 2 in 2001, and then John Lasseter canceled it in 2006. So it took 60 years to announce it, and five years of it sitting in, you know, development hell for them to give up on it. all for them to then make the live-action remake in 2019, which was also announced about six years before it was released. So Dumbo has kind of this troubled legacy to some extent where they know it's iconic, they know that people are attached to it, but they don't really seem to know what to do with it.
0: Yeah, and I I haven't seen the live-action remake, um, although I see in the notes here that The crows and Timothy Mouse were not included, which, okay, like, I'm not saying the crows are essential, but Timothy Mouse seems pretty, uh, you know, pretty core to the, the Disney version of this story. And it just makes me think that the character of Dumbo, and I'll throw in Timothy Mouse there as well, are iconic, but the story is not a favorite.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of similar to Fantasia where people aren't necessarily going to re-watch it over and over again but there's a couple of standout kind of figures from it the live-action is really weird it was actually directed by Tim Burton it was not very successful but they basically... the only thing that it has in common oh, it also gets rid of the storks uh, Dumbo has big ears he wants to be kept with his mother as most infants do. Um, That's about it. They're very, very different movies. Uh, They tried to make it a more human-based movie, uh, I guess because they figured if it's going to be live-action, we might as well have people instead of CGI'd animals. Uh, Not that they did that with Lion King. Um, But it ends up being about a family that's connected to the circus but realizes that humans are abusing these poor animals, and they end up kind of bringing out the possibility of circuses without animals. So it kind of plays into some of the controversy about the abuse that animals face in circuses, which definitely was kind of a big deal politically at the time. But what it did was it basically eliminated the Dumbo of it all. They just basically used the name to put out a movie about not hurting animals. which isn't the worst thing. I I agree that we shouldn't torment animals. Uh, Humanity certainly seems to be the villain in this movie, as it will be certainly the villain in our next movie, (laughs) Bambi. Um, The greatest Disney
0: villain of all, man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm
0: I'm still stuck on adding Danny DeVito playing a human character to the the Lion King remake. (laughs)
1: So all of the remakes, it seemed like the Cinderella one, they went, okay, well, let's just do it with really pretty uh, costumes. And that worked pretty well. And then from there, they didn't really know what to do. So they just tried to add celebrities over and over. Uh, I mean, the Dumbo live action, they were like, ah, we'll have Tim Burton. And then they announced that Will Smith was going to be in it. And then he left. And then... Uh, Chris Pine was gonna be in it but then he left um, it, it just kept going back and forth I think they just kept trying to throw big names in which is kind of antithetical to what Disney is it's supposed to be about the character and the story not can we get a big name actor to do it uh, so I don't know it, it definitely kind of ends up in that realm of Disney live action remakes that just didn't have the magic of the original.
0: Yeah. Cinderella is the only one of those that I find has any sort of <clears throat> return value. Um, at least, at least in my opinion from the ones I've seen. Dumbo might be the only one I haven't seen. I did suffer through both Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. <laughs> um, and the Lion King I didn't mind because it was basically like just the animated movie with a different aesthetic. Uh, and I was at least impressed by it on a technical level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I saw Jungle Book anyway, this is a this is a topic for a much much later episode of this podcast. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting um, I, I, I do think especially with Dumbo that it om- just again, not having seen this particular animated remake and I, I thought about watching it this week, but I, I just ran out of time. I do think it's interesting that it's like, okay, we can reintroduce this character without some of the, you know, things that we're putting an unskippable sensitivity warning on before the start of our original version of the story. Uh, and maybe that's why they changed it so much, but you know, for something to stick, you have to make it good in the first place. (laughs) And I've never heard anyone say anything particularly good about that version of Dumbo. Um, But some other legacy things where Dumbo has shown up uh, in the Steven Spielberg movie, 1941, that he made in 1979, which obviously takes place in 1941. uh, Robert Stack plays the real life Major General uh, Joseph W. Stillwell. uh, And there's a scene where he's watching uh, Dumbo in the theater and crying during the baby mine scene. You know, he's like this really stern, tough military guy. And yet he's crying watching Dumbo, which I think is a really... Uh, that movie is not good at all, but it's a it's a <laughs> it's a moment that sticks out because it's one of the best I feel like uses of a uh, we're using a, a a movie that was released at the time this movie takes place to show something about the time period in which this movie is set, um, and then my other my actual other big personal attachment to Dumbo is the Dumbo Circus, which was a. Live action, like almost like a um, I'm trying to f- think of enough different references to, to to capture multiple generations here, but somewhere between H.R. Puff and stuff and Barney type like people in animal costumes, uh, but not ones that look like the Disney parks, like they were more, you know, puppet like where they I feel like their eyes blinked and stuff. But again, I've not seen this since I was like three. So, <laughs> you know, fuzzy memories for sure. Uh, but that aired on the Disney Channel in the 80s, and it had a bunch of colorful characters who were always, like, you know, putting on some sort of circus show, and there would inevitably be some sort of, you know, educational lesson baked into the episode. Uh, but it was definitely a sequel to uh, the series, because Dumbo was, like, a main performer. Uh, I don't remember that if he actually, like, flew, flew on the show, uh, because of you know budgetary limitations and costume design and things, but uh, I definitely have fonder memories of that show than I do of watching Dumbo the movie, because I, I do think I've only ever really made it through the whole of this thing maybe twice before watching it for this.
1: Yeah, I think that there's definitely... You know, if if you've been listening this long, I think you've probably gotten the fact that this is not our favorite Disney movie, (laughs) Uh, but it has a lot of really important things. Um, You know, it did go on to be in Kingdom Hearts. It was also in uh, the Disney game, Disney Magic Kingdoms. Uh, We see Dumbo, Timothy Mouse, and then the Ringmaster as kind of the villain of it popping up every now and then. Uh, But the story itself uh, just doesn't really seem to be kind of holding much of an effect on modern audiences. Um, It was certainly not a movie that I remembered being super attached to. um, And I don't think there's too many people who did. But it is particularly, I'll say, interesting in the realm of race. Uh, which is the point where we get to another lovely section of Disney doing things that are really horrible uh, and also occasionally doing surprisingly interesting things. Um, so, anybody who was watching along with us uh, on Disney Plus will notice that there is the 10 second introductory content warning saying that there are, you know, unacceptable stereotypes and caricatures in this. Uh, and there's kind of two versions of it, one that is absolutely unacceptable and one that is kind of contested. So I'll start with the, the completely unacceptable one, and then I'll pass it over to Ryan for a, a second to talk about the crows that are, are kind of a complicated story. Uh, but just starting out from the beginning, we have uh, the circus workers We see the clowns and and some of the performers are all pretty much white. They have faces, they speak. But then we have the people who are putting the circus up, uh, who don't really have names. The best we can call them is the roustabouts, because that's the name that they're given. So they are put to the manual labor, and they are all black. They barely have faces. They don't really have any particular characterization except for what they sing in the song of the roustabouts um it is pretty much all terrible there's there's really no redeeming factors in that portrayal uh some of the lines include we work all day we work all night we never learn to read or write uh when other folks have gone to bed we slave until we're almost dead i think the word slave was very uh important there uh and we don't know when we get our pay and when we do we throw our pay away uh it's very much sending the message that uh black people are really only there for manual labor they have no kind of intellectual contributions and that any poverty they may have is because they are careless with their money um and that's pretty much just all terrible. There's really nothing good to say about that. Um, That's one of those portions that probably would be best cut out if they were trying to retell the story more directly. Uh, At which point we go, okay, well now we have a 30-minute movie. Uh, How do we make a plot out of that? Which is probably why the live-action just made a whole new story. Um, But the more contested part is definitely The Crows.
0: Yeah, and just a couple of thoughts on on the Rastavets. The the only other uh, the only other characters we see setting up the circus in the middle of a thunderstorm, no less, uh, are the elephants, and there's a version of this which says, "Oh, the way society treats these kinds of people is the same way that society treats animals," but I think it's not coming from that angle so much as the. Uh, I, I don't think it's taking that into consideration at all. Um, and it really, I, I feel like it's the, it's less talked about than the crows, but it is actually, there are there's no redeeming quality to it. And I think it's really telling that, you know, especially in the stork sequence and then in the circus parade sequence, all of the animal characters, even the ones that don't really have, you know, personalities or or dialogue or anything. Like I'm thinking of, you know, the, the gorilla sort of pulling the bar out of his cage and then putting it back in. And, you know, the hippos and the lions with their babies and the giraffes and stuff. Like they have more character to them and more personality than these literally faceless workers do. Um and it is very uncomfortable to watch. I think the and I think the rousabouts are problematic in any context whereas i feel like the crows jump out as problematic even more so out of context like if you only see the clips of the crows it's harder to wrap your head around what's going on there and the stereotype aspects of them just leap out now there's no denying that the crow characters are based on black people um, there are ties to stereotypes, uh, especially, you know, sort of minstrel or minstrel-adjacent stereotypes, um, and that's, that is certainly evident. Now, the, the history of the minstrel show as performed by black performers is a little bit more complicated than white performers performing in blackface, and there's a sort of mix of that within this portrayal. Um, So the lead Crow, originally named Jim Crow, um, is voiced by white actor Cliff Edwards, and he is clearly doing an imitation of Southern black people uh, and the way that they speak. Jim Crow, by this time, had already become a pejorative for uh, African-Americans, you know, based on the um, uh, post-Reconstruction segregation laws in the South named Jim Crow laws. Uh, The character's name was officially changed in the 50s to Dandy Crow to sort of try to sidestep the issue. I don't think that makes it any better. (laughs) Um, However, there is a counter argument because the other crows in the group are all voiced by black actors and singers from the Hall Johnson Choir, including James Baskett, who would later show up in Song of the South, Nick Stewart, who was part of Amos and Andy, because they're voiced by Black actors, I feel like there is a little bit more... Like, authenticity isn't the right word, but there is a little more respect paid to it. Um, I do think Cliff Cliff Edwards doing the voice of the lead, his performance does come across to me as the most exaggerated, and I think the other characters actually don't feel as over-the-top as the lead Crow. Ward Kimball, uh, who we've mentioned before, he was the lead animator on the sequence. Uh, He used... um, Freddie and Eugene Jackson, uh, who were famous black dancers at the time, uh, as the live action reference for the characters. Um, you know, Leonard Malton chimes in and says that the controversy is a little overblown because he sees them as black characters that sort of move beyond stereotype, even if they have certain stereotypical attributes, which is certainly an opinion he's entitled to. <laughs> You know, animation historian John Canemaker felt that the crows were amongst the few characters in the film that are sympathetic to, uh, are, <clears throat> uh, were amongst the few very few characters in the film that sympathize with and are empathetic to Dumbo's plight because they are marginalized themselves and so they relate to Dumbo as an outcast. Um, and he also adds that the crows are the most intelligent, happiest, and most free-spirited characters in the movie. Which, again, I think you could argue both ways, that that is a positive and a negative, because on the one hand, those are positive qualities. On the other hand, as we'll talk about with Song of the South, that there's a happy free spirit stereotype associated with black people in the South uh, coming out of the Civil War as well. And so... It, it becomes very muddy, I think, the more and more that you look at it. Uh, in 1980, film critic Michael Wilmington referred to the Crows as father figures who are self-assured and obvious parodies of proletarian black people um, commenting that, again, the Crows are snap the snappiest, liveliest, most together characters in the film. They are tough and generous. They bound out to no one. And, of course, it is they who teach Dumbo to fly. In 2019, Floyd Norman, who was the first African-American animator hired by the Disney company up uh, back in the 1950s, also defended the Crows in an article called Black Crows and Other PC Nonsense. I couldn't find a copy of that full article uh, online to read through to get the gist of his actual argument about the characters, but I do think it's it is interesting positioning. And again, my memory of this is very much of mostly of the lead crow like i I remember that there are other crows in the scene but he you know the the lead crow is the one that sort of stands out and again is i think the most exaggerated and most kind of over the top of these characters and i understand where the counter arguments are coming from i don't i don't particularly find them fully persuasive Um, i don't think that the crows are again it's not about like you know, ranking problematic elements of Disney movies. But I think there are, they are not as offensive to me as other things that we have seen and other things that we will see uh, coming out of Disney. But I do think that they are extremely prominent and definitely like, I mean, when I was a kid growing up in the Northeast, I wasn't really exposed to those particular stereotypes of black people. So I don't think it quite registered for me as a kid. But I think if you were, you know, a white kid or a black kid raised in an environment like the South, where those stereotypes are a bit more prominent, we have different stereotypes in the Northeast. Uh, No less, no better, but just different. Um, I feel like... That, would, that could easily reinforce the worldview that you're taking in from the world around you in a not healthy way. So I think it is more complicated. I, found the counter, I find the counter arguments more interesting than personally compelling, though.
1: Yeah, I think that it's, it's definitely complicated. Um, one of the things that I will say in favor of the counter arguments is, as we said before, basically everyone in this movie is terrible. They are all really bad people, and the Crows are basically the only complex characters. Um, I mean, the good characters are pretty much just good and vulnerable the whole time. The bad characters are pretty much just bad the whole time. Uh, But the Crows start out by mocking uh, Dumbo and Timothy, and then go on to become these really kind of supportive figures. So. There is an argument to be made there. Um, That being said, I also know that I am not the person who is most impacted by this and that there are people who are much better than me to say whether this is something that is appropriate or not. I think that there's a lot of complexity there. And I think that that could have been an area where the live action film could have really grown where they could have had these characters be really important, central characters uh, and instead they took kind of the easy way out of just cutting them all together. Um, So I think that it's definitely a complicated issue. I think overall the film has a lot of issues where race is involved and isn't something that should be necessarily put on for your child to watch without any context. But I definitely do feel that there's kind of an interesting duality to it, that there are kind of these two sides to be argued, which is certainly not the case for most of Disney's racism, which is pretty much straightforward terrible. And I I, I do wonder how much of that might have been different had Disney been in a different point in their history, uh, because we have so many different people coming in and coming out with the making of this movie. Uh, I think that perhaps what we see here is that there are some actually good ideas that were badly managed, or perhaps even the opposite, where there were some pretty cruelly intended uh, jokes that thankfully the right people were able to make a little not... a little better. Um, That being said, it's complicated, and I don't really have the final word on this um but I think it's definitely kind of an interesting situation to examine
0: I absolutely second all of that and I I think it's it's worth discussing and worth thinking about but you know I I think this one has more of it both sides than like I said like we both said a lot of other examples that we'll be talking about both have talked about and and we'll be talking about Um, you know as Megan alluded to, I I think you can kind of tell that this is not a favorite for for either of us. Um, you know, I especially as a kid, I struggled with sad stories, like not stories that I enjoyed that had sad moments of that uh, in them, but this movie is, I would characterize it as overall a sad story. Um, you know, I it's not one that I return to over and over again. You know, I certainly enjoyed. Casey Jr. stuff, Train stuff, and and some of the songs. But, you know, Baby Mine made me sad. The Pink Elephants I found very disturbing. So it really, it, it was certainly not a favorite of mine growing up. And I think the, some of those, uh, especially Baby Mine and The Pink Elephants, are things I appreciate more today, even though this is still not going to be one that I uh, return to more often necessarily it's i certainly appreciated dumbo more on this watch than i anticipated i did i wouldn't say i enjoyed it um but even with the sort of different less cost intensive art style i did find a lot of artistry here there's a lot of interesting sort of camera angles and the way the sequences are put together so i'm thinking you know the the sort of tower of elephant scene and the way that's drawn, especially when, you know, Dumbo Dumbo trips over his ears and rolls into the giant ball that they're standing on, and the way that sort of is, like, uh, not edited, but the way that the uh, animation is cut together um, and really sort of emphasizes the chaotic actions and and the jumping of the different frames is really interesting. The sort of zoomed-out view of Florida, and then we see the sort of overhead view of the summer encampment of this circus uh is a really cool shot and really well done um there's a lot of you know that that stork montage of them delivering all the little baby animals is really cute so there's a lot of things here that i like um even the clowns uh after their um after their performance and we, we see them sort of through the tent and we're seeing them like take off their costumes and they're talking. I think that's a really, really brilliant piece of animation and really interesting to look at. Um, but again, the story overall is not one that I... <clears throat> the parts the parts of it that I enjoy are the parts that make me the most sad. <laughs> and so... Uh, but not sad in like a, you know, fulfilling and wholeful way, but just sort of sad in a like man, life is just kind of miserable, <laughs> um, you know? And I think, uh, again, the the Pink Elephants thing, I it's funny that that really bothered me as a kid, whereas stuff like Heffalumps and Woozles like didn't really bother me for some reason, even though they're sort of the same kind of sequence. But uh, I, I think what I like about it now is just, I mean, the pure drawing of it, it is to me objectively very well done, uh, even if you don't like that sort of surreal style. It's very artfully put together and I do sort of miss the, like I think in the move to, in the move to 3d animation away from 2d animation, I think there's a resistance to uh, the surreal aspects of cartoons that have sort of always been there from the beginning. And I think this is a really good example of something we just don't see today. And I, I know this particular sequence is, very creepy and very weird and again very upsetting to small kids uh, but there's I think there are other examples out there that are less so um you know especially like musical sequences there's some I think there's one in Encanto I really like that gets a little bit abstract or at least plays with you know space and uh form a little bit more than than usual but I I appreciate the artistry behind it and it, it did make it did remind me like this feels like a movie for adults uh more than it feels like a movie for kids or even for families.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a lot going on there. Um on your point of it feeling more like for adults, um I I'm really tracking the word usage and the stories. Uh I feel like you you really latch onto the visual um, a lot more. Uh I just couldn't help noticing that they use some really violent terms. Um, the, uh, for instance, the, the ringleader and kind of his workers call, uh, Dumbo's mom a murderer, and the other elephants call Dumbo an assassin. These are not words I expect children to understand, but they're also very weird words to have in a potentially children's movie. Uh, and that was definitely something I noticed while watching it.
0: Yeah, I, I... It's funny. I, I didn't clock those words in particular, but that sequence of Dumbo's mom kind of getting out of control because she's so angry is one I think very understandable and very evocative. The way, like, I felt that emotion in her, and I felt so horrible for her. I mean, that's the thing. Like, this movie just bones me out from basically from start to finish. <laughs> like, I just feel bad for Dumbo's mom the whole time. Even even I feel worse for her than I do for Dumbo because like. Dumbo sort of only uh, sort of understands what's happening in terms. And like he doesn't, there's not a ton of violence directed in his direction, but like his mom is ridiculed by the people who are her peers. You know, they're all being abused by the circus. And then she's put in solitary confinement, basically for something that is purely instinctual for any, (laughs) you know, certainly any mammal if not, most animals would react that way if something was happening to their child, and it's it's very heartbreaking. And again, baby mine, you know, even before I knew that 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 detail about Mary Blair and and the things that she had experienced in her life and sort of put into that sequence, it is maybe one of the saddest things I've ever seen in a movie. I watched. I'm trying to remember the name of that. Oh, oh I. A couple years ago to write about it, I finally watched Grave of the Fireflies, which is about two Japanese kids during the Second World War who are basically orphans and trying not to starve to death because of all the things that are happening with the war. And I found that um, like over the top to the point of where I I disengaged with it because it was so bleak that I couldn't even relate to it anymore because it just felt so over the top. But this there I feel like I can feel like when I watched Grave of the Fireflies it felt like the movie was trying to make me feel a certain way whereas I feel like baby mine I could feel the emotions coming from with that were put into the sequence itself if that makes any sense
1: yeah it does um I think that another thing that we are kind of dancing around but haven't touched on is that there's definitely kind of a gendered narrative to Dumbo I mean, Dumbo is male, uh, Timothy is male, all of the humans, so far as we can tell, are male, uh, and really the only women that we see are the elephants, and then the- the few other mothers who got their children directly by the stork and basically just were like, oh, I have a baby, cool, this is- whatever. Um, but there's definitely kind of an angle of everyone is out to get the single mother and her child- Um, that I think is really interesting when you look at Disney's history at this time. uh, Because there were a lot of single mothers working at Disney who were some of the only people who were still working during the strike because they couldn't afford not to. Uh, And I do wonder if that kind of bled into it a little bit where we see the idea that, you know, the elephants know that they are being abused by the ringmaster, but they kind of just have to put up with it and they... ...hold themselves together by knowing that they are, as they say, a proud race. And that they, you know, Dumbo's mom will do anything as long as he is okay. Um, and, you know, the whole world, except for Timothy, uh, is, is out to get the two of them. Uh, and there's definitely kind of the narrative that I think we also see tied into the Depression... ...and especially tied into the war, once that starts... That a mother and her child are not made to survive in this world. They're, you know, in the 40s, the world kind of required that you had a man of the house taking care of things and making sure that everyone was protected and safe and taken care of. And whether that's, you know, the ideal state of reality or not, that was definitely something that was being experienced in this time period that I think the women of the forties would definitely resonate with.
0: Yeah. It is really interesting too. When you think about Snow White has no parents and then Pinocchio has just a dad and or two dads, depending on how you want to count uh, Jiminy (laughs) Cricket. And then, uh, you know, then Dumbo has like a mom basically. And, it is interesting, like, I almost wonder, because you mentioned a little bit in the notes too about comparing Pinocchio and Dumbo sort of story-wise and, you know, I think moral, moral-wise. moral And I do think it's interesting that, ever like, Pinocchio has the reputation for being a dark movie, and it is, but this was more upsetting to watch, even with the shorter runtime uh, for me. And I think, like, I almost wonder if, like, people watching in 1941 like having gone through the depression and survived and like you know europe has been at war with itself for you know at least a year and a half at this point like i wonder if they found this like hopeful in a way that like is hard for me like even with all the pandemic and everything that we've been through in the past you know five years let's say I you know i i don't know i just don't find this like uplifting or a sense of like resilience it's just life is an ordeal and i just have to keep putting up with it
1: yeah i think that okay so i'm gonna go on a slight tangent to connect with that the optimism of it is in the last shot where we see the the carnival moving forward and jump or uh well i'll call him dumbo but jumbo his mom, you know, has her own car with like a pool and it's like a luxury spa and it's kind of the the vibe that I feel like a lot of sons of single moms really think of as the dream. Like, I'm gonna get famous and I'm gonna make sure my mom never has to struggle again. Uh, so I think that there's definitely an element of that going on, but it is all—this is gonna sound so stupid— This all hinges to me on a world in which animals are actually able to communicate with humans but choose not to. Because, look, there are many movies where we see animals that can speak. I'm fine with that. There are movies where animals can speak and humans can speak, but they can't speak to each other. But that rule is broken in this movie. Timothy is somehow able to merge... The the two languages. I don't know, because uh, he gives the ringmaster the idea of Dumbo being the star, and then he is Dumbo's agent, somehow signing him like movie deals and and contracts, and the whole of it hinges on Timothy being able to communicate with both the animals and the humans, and maybe there's some grand metaphor that I'm not getting there about like. The ability to code-switch and live between two worlds. I don't know, I'm sure that we could extrapolate it into a great academic article, but... As far as I'm concerned, I just need a little bit more logic. Like, I'm fine if the animals can talk to each other, but if they can talk to the humans, why are they still being abused by them? You know? Like, they are stronger and seemingly just as intelligent and able to communicate. Why are all of the elephants standing on top of each other for one little man that they could crush? Uh, So yes, my, my one issue is that if the animals can communicate, then humans should not be in control of the world anymore.
0: Fair, fair. It's funny. I, uh, I, on a slightly different tangent, I saw uh, the new movie air last night, which is about getting Michael Jordan to sign his contract with Nike And I definitely thought about a performer with a almost supernatural-like ability. His main driving force, at least the way that's shown in the movie, is his mom is, like, the one who's, like, running the family. Now, the Jordans come from, like, what I would call a respectable middle-class lifestyle to begin with. You know, it's not like the nike deal lifted them out of you know some kind of severe poverty or anything but the ending of of dumbo where she's got this sort of luxury car suite and the resulting wealth that the jordans have coming out of the air jordan deal with nike uh the parallels there were also not lost on me accidental as they may be which i which i think you know goes back to your tangent so that there is some weird stuff just kind of built into this movie um But again, ultimately, it's one that I respect more than I like, even if I don't obviously don't respect some of the, you know, more uh, racial caricature elements of the movie. But I I respect the artistry and there's individual pieces that I I find really moving. But on the whole, it's just not one that I'm going to it's not one that I find enough depth in to be worth the uh, the emotions I'm going to put myself through watching it again
1: yeah i think that's fair there's i mean like you said and like we've said a couple times it's very sad it's occasionally very creepy uh and it doesn't necessarily seem to get out of that enough by the end um and i'm not entirely sure why it isn't successful other than us not accepting that a mouse was able to to get an elephant to this height of fame i uh, because theoretically, I, I guess it is a very uplifting ending. I mean, they they find success, they're rich. Dumbo not only has seemingly money and fame, but literally the ability to fly away. And that somehow is not as impactful to us as as it should be, and seemingly as it was in the 40s, because they seem to really like this as we aren't. So maybe maybe it is just a matter of different time period but uh mm-hmm. it is weird because it should be a success story and yet it doesn't okay here's my argument and this is <laughs> i think this is gonna sound so stupid i think we needed to see the villain pay and that's what we're not getting we see, we're not getting justice right We see Dumbo succeed, and that's great. But the circus is still going. The ringmaster is still making money off of this. Like, the exploitation... And I think that, like you said, there's a deep narrative of that with both the humans and the animals here. The circus is a deeply exploitative field. Mm -hmm. And I guess my problem is... Which is a, a big sociological kind of argument one person finding success doesn't dismantle a fundamentally exploitative system
0: all right so here's the rewrite okay (laughs) at the end of the movie timothy takes over the circus he's able to use dumbo's newfound wealth to buy out the ringmaster the ringmaster is now you know uh now doing manual labor, you know, sh- cleaning out the train cars of all the animals or something, and so now he's he's been reduced, and Timothy has been raised up, and he is now you know, only led only making the animals perform, things that they want to perform, you know. It, it's it's now a sort of like democratized, maybe even unionized circuits. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So number one, I love the connection to the history of the time. Uh, Definitely good vibes there. Number two, as much as we, you know, or as much as I uh, smack-talked the remake, I kid you not, that's the ending of the remake. Let me read the last paragraph of the Dumbo 2019 film Wikipedia plot summary. Uh, So long story short, there is this human group That we're kind of following, and we see how they sympathize with Dumbo and and all of that. Uh, So they manage to uh, let Dumbo's mom out, uh, and then they destroy the circus. But Dumbo saves the good humans, and then, quote... Sometime later, the renamed Medici Family Circus is re-established and flourishes with Colette as the newest troupe member, Millie as host of a science lecture exhibition, and performers dressed as animals in line with the circus's new policy of not using wild animals in captivity for entertainment. It is implied that Vanderveer, who I believe is the ringleader in this, was convicted of arson. Meanwhile, Dumbo and his mother reunite with a herd of wild elephants who applaud Dumbo as he flies with joy. So as much as it's a completely different story, it actually is basically the rewrite that you just <laughs> asked for.
0: There we go. So I, I mean, they're on to something. And I, and I think this the lack of 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 justice in a, in a purely uh you know legal like not even not even talking about a social justice necessarily but i think even just the lack of personal justice in the story because you know as much as it's a correct aphorism living well is the best revenge but it's certainly not satisfying in a movie
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay i want that to be our our tag for this podcast (laughs) that's a fantastic line
0: (laughs) anything else about dumbo before we wrap it up
1: just the one more thing uh you touched on it but we didn't really dive into it so i had been thinking about kind of the contrast between pinocchio and dumbo in regard to leisure and alcohol and things like that uh because it it kind of connects to me with how disney as a company developed so in pinocchio we see the children get taken to the the fun land or or whatever Pleasure Island, the creepy terminology for it, uh, where they get to run around and play and smoke and drink and that's all fun and good except for the fact that they are being, you know, turned into donkeys and evil people are using it. Uh, So that kind of sent the narrative that, like, an entertainment facility is a dangerous place where you can be exploited, but the fun isn't necessarily bad in its own right. To Dumbo, where we're at a circus, which is an entertainment establishment where people are being abused and taken advantage of, alcohol is clearly a bad thing in this movie. Uh, There's no kind of ambivalence towards it. Um, But we don't get to see whether leisure is a bad thing. We just see that humans who are going to the circus are evil, terrible people. Um, who who like to taunt baby elephants but to me I kind of want to look at kind of this exploration of whether leisure and entertainment is safe and good or kind of morally bankrupt as we lead into the years of Walt deciding to make Disneyland and Disney World Uh, because I think there's definitely kind of a, a message in there of kind of morally good is to work and care for others, but not to enjoy yourself.
0: Yeah. And and I think, you know, I still think the three little pigs is probably the best encapsulation of that where, you know, practical pig has his brick built piano, but he did all that hard work before he did leisure. The only thing I will add to that for now on the, on the alcohol note that I think is very interesting and very telling perhaps Uh, Is that uh, even to this day, there are only one or two places in Disneyland where you can buy alcohol not having people drunk on beer was one of the primary reasons that made Walt want to make his own theme park as a thing to avoid. Uh, Trash was the other big (laughs) was the other big one. So I th- I think that is a very a very interesting thread. And I think as far as I'm aware, Walt Disney enjoyed, you know, at least the occasional drink. Um, so I don't think that drinking was the was the end all be all problem in that sense. But there is something about public drunkenness, I think, throughout these that really is really depicted as an evil. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that there's, you know, this sense that work is very important seems to be Mm -hmm. kind of a thread, you know. Uh, Build your house well, go to school instead of running away to become an actor. Uh, Also ironic with the entertainment industry here. Um, Be careful who you trust is definitely a big thing, especially in these early films. We can tack in Snow White, you know. She trusted an old woman and wanted to get all of her wishes with an apple and that, you know, almost killed her, um, I definitely think there's a, a moral thread running through here that work and caution are better than leisure and kind of demanding uh, good things, I guess.
0: Or the taking, taking a shortcut to the good things?
1: Yes. Uh, I mean... Even with Dumbo being our kind of uh, proto-Cinderella, I would say, of kind of rags to riches, we see that he, you know, worked hard for it and stays with the circus. He doesn't just fly off with his mom, at least in the original version. He continues to do the work, um, which I think is is definitely influenced by the strike. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see how kind of these moral values develop as we go forward.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point and something that we will have to continue to track as as we continue.
1: Oh, wait, one more thing before we close. Sure. Because I said last episode that I would do this and because our listeners, I'm sure, are deeply interested. You were very affronted by the idea that elephants were being misrepresented in uh, the last movie. So now that you've seen Dumbo, do you feel that this is accurate to the truth of elephants?
0: It's certainly better than uh, the comments in The Reluctant Dragon because I don't think elephants here, despite the name of the title character, I don't think elephants are pro- are portrayed here as being stupid. Um, I think that they are shown at least to be of, of average intelligence compared to the other characters, both human and animal, <laughs> in, in the movie. Um, you know, they have an intense phobia around mice <laughs> Which I kind of I, I i get it, but um, you know i my my issue was the the commentaries about real elephants, whereas I I think the cartoon elephants here were pro- portrayed fairly at the, at the very <laughs> least.
1: Fair enough. I will say I believe the MythBusters uh, looked up whether elephants are truly scared of mice or not. Let me go to Google really quickly. I believe they found that it was true.
0: I mean, it sort of makes sense because they, you know, like they're small and, you know, they might be difficult for them to see on the ground.
1: Maybe. Um, yes. So from what I can see, uh, the Mythbusters proved that it was true. Apparently, scientists think that the Mythbusters didn't do a good enough job, uh, but that's, that's our important uh, elephant uh, advocacy and awareness note for this episode. Elephants are definitely smart, and real or cartoon elephants may or may not be terrified of mice.
0: I'm, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh continuing on with our discussions of animals and their accuracy, next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, we will be hanging out with Flower, Thumper, Bambi and more. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart@gmail.com at and follow us on Twitter, dreammindheart, and on Instagram at heart. Thanks for joining.
0: Yep. And just remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And thank you to Rosalie
1: Kicks for our artwork and to Honey Badgers Folk for our theme song.